Hello and welcome to an OU Law School podcast. My name is Maria Najewski and on this episode I will be talking with Stephanie Pywell, who is a senior lecturer here at the Law School. We'll be talking about her many research interests and how she organizes her research. I had a great time talking to Stephanie. We cover many topics which she follows with passion and tenacity. So I really enjoyed this talk and I hope you will too. In July, the Law School will be launching its celebration of the 50 years of the Open University. We have some interesting stuff coming out your way, so watch this space in July. And now, let's enjoy this episode. So Stephanie, can you tell me something about your research and what got you interested into it? Okay, well, the first thing I should say is that unlike many of my colleagues, I don't have a single overarching research interest. I'm afraid I've got a rather butterfly mind, and I like investigating things that seem to me to be unjust or inconsistent. And it's that passion for order and justice that made me start studying law when it was in my late 30s, and it's what still drives me. And it means that all my research is based on things that I think really need doing or really need sorting out. And if I didn't think that, I couldn't keep going. And at the moment, I've got four main research interests. They're neuroscience and law, civil marriage, a scholarship project and secondary legislation. That's a, quite a diverse selection. Yeah. <laughs> um, so let's start with neuroscience and law. What, what's that about? Okay, well, neuroscience is the study of how our brains work. And as you can imagine, that's a massive topic and it covers a huge range of things. It includes psychological disorders, memory, artificial intelligence, psychotropic drugs. And many of those things do or should affect how people are treated by the law. So if, for instance, someone has Alzheimer's disease, they're likely to be viewed by a court as an unreliable witness. And if someone is proven to have some specified states of mind, they may be able to escape a conviction for murder even when they've deliberately killed someone who hasn't done them any harm. So what prompted you to go into this area of research? (laughs) It was pure luck. Um, When I was first appointed as an OU lecturer in 2013, I didn't have any research interests. And Paul Catley, who started on the same day as me and is now head of the OU Law School, told me that he was studying neuroscience and law. Now, my first degree, which I got from the OU in the 1980s, was in science and maths. So I thought neuroscience sounded really interesting. And I said half jokingly, do you want an acolyte? And Paul laughed. And then he outlined a question about functional magnetic resonance imaging, which is known as fMRI, that he thought needed investigating. And I agreed it sounded fascinating. And well, that's how it started, really. So what is an fMRI and how does it work? Um, fMRI is a neuroimaging technique that can enable us to read people's brains. Different parts of our brains do different things, and when a part of the brain is more active, it has more blood flowing to it, in exactly the same way that our legs have more blood flowing to them when we're jogging than when we're watching television. Now, because blood includes iron, it has some magnetic properties, and that means that a scanner containing giant magnets and several million pounds worth of other technical equipment can detect which parts of the brain are most active at any given moment. So if you ask someone to imagine playing tennis, a particular part of their brain will become active. And if you ask that same person to imagine walking around their home, 
another area becomes active. And those two areas of the brain are quite a long way from one another. So an fMRI scan can, we think, determine which of them is more active at any time. Well, that's interesting on the science part, but what does that have to do with law? Oh, well, it's interesting to the law because potentially, with all sorts of ifs and buts, it means that we may be able to communicate with people who aren't able to communicate in any other way at all. And that includes people with disorders of consciousness, which is the tiny little part of neuroscience and law that I specialise in. And the reason that we may be able to communicate with those people is because Dr Adrian Owen, who's a leading neuroscientist, and his colleagues have developed what's called a clinical paradigm, and they use the brain reading properties of fMRI to enable people to answer questions. So that means that you can ask people questions that require just a yes or no answer, and you can read the answers. So you tell them to imagine playing tennis if the answer is no, or walking around their home if the answer is yes. You test the person first by asking them questions that you know the answer to, such as, is your father's name Alexander, or were you born in 1976? And if they correctly answer six out of six questions, you assume that isn't coincidence. And that means that you can go on to ask them all sorts of things that are clinically and legally really, really important. So before we go any further, can you explain what a disorder of consciousness is? Presumably that's a result of brain damage? Yes, that's right. People have disorders of consciousness because their brains are damaged. And the current thinking is that there are three disorders of consciousness. The most serious one is a coma. When someone is in a coma, they are completely unconscious and they have no idea of anything that's going on around them. The middle one is called the vegetative state, or VS, which is a bit easier. And when people are in that state, they're considered to be completely unaware of themselves or their surroundings. They might sometimes laugh or cry or even mutter a couple of words, but those things seem to be random rather than responsive because of something that's happened in their environment. And the least serious disorder of consciousness is the minimally conscious state. And that covers a wide spectrum of people from those who are almost in VS at the severe end to those who can sometimes speak a few words or respond to commands at the higher end. But there's another group of people whom this technology could also help, and that's those who have locked-in syndrome. These people are fully conscious and aware of everything that's going on around them, but they can't communicate in any way at all. Sometimes you hear of people who've had a stroke and who can just move one eyelid or lift a finger. But there are some people who have absolutely no voluntary movement. And because they can't move or respond, they look as if they're completely unconscious and they will be treated accordingly. And I can't imagine how awful it must be to be in that state, to hear everything that's going on around you, and yet not to be able to indicate what you think, what you feel or what you want. So for people who are minimally conscious or who have locked-in syndrome, fMRI may provide a means of communicating by the yes-no questions that I mentioned earlier. So what possibilities does that open for patients? It has some really huge, important possibilities, but probably before I start talking about those, I should quickly mention the ifs and buts, because it isn't all quick, quite clear-cut yet. Now, um, all the published studies that have so far enabled people to answer questions using fMRI have been done by a very small number of groups of highly specialised scientists in the world. 
And it would obviously not be practical for all the people with disorders of consciousness to be assessed by those few groups. So what we need is for those findings to be replicated by others and so that they can be proven to be reliable and robust and then they can be of widespread use. The second obstacle is the size and the cost of scanners that can do fMRI. Uh, it's not easy to find out what they cost. You can't just Google fMRI scanner and eBay and just get a list of them. But I think they cost several million pounds to buy, about half a million pounds to install and about 500 pounds an hour to operate. I found some data that suggested that around one in six NHS hospitals in the UK has a scanner that's capable of performing fMRI. So it would be necessary to transport a lot of very ill people over very long distances in order to scan them. But if we could overcome those logistical difficulties, the possibilities are immense. And the thing that initially interested Paul, and which I explored when I started on the topic, is pain. Because people with disorders of consciousness can't tell doctors when they're in pain, and because sometimes they won't even respond in the usual physical way to painful stimuli, it's generally assumed that they aren't in pain. And obviously it wouldn't be ethical to administer heavy doses of opiates or something like that to someone who didn't need them. So just imagine that you've spent years lying in a hospital bed, conscious but completely unable to move any part of your body and in agonising pain, but just being treated to prevent I don't know, bed sores and blood clots because you couldn't tell anyone that you were in pain. And then you were taken to an fMRI scanner and you answered your six test questions correctly and then someone says, are you in pain? And you can think about walking around your home and they know you're in pain. And then they say, is the pain bad? You say, yes. Would you like us to treat the pain? Do you understand that morphine can have unpleasant side effects? And so on and so on. And finally, you indicate whether you'd like morphine and you're given some and your pain subsides. And even more importantly, that same method could be used to ask people who are being kept alive only by clinically assisted nutrition and hydration, so that's tube feeding, whether they'd like that support to be withdrawn so that they can die naturally. And again, it's an awful thing to imagine, but suppose you were being kept alive by tube feeding and you really wanted to stay alive because you enjoyed seeing your grandchildren and looking out of the window and seeing the birds and the flowers, and then you heard doctors telling your relatives that they thought there was absolutely no hope for you and it would be in your best interest to be allowed to die. And your relatives agreed with them because they thought it was what you'd want. So there was nothing to go to court about, but you knew that a few days after they'd removed the tube, you would be dead against your wishes. Or on the other hand, just imagine you were being kept alive by tube feeding and you were fully aware of the hopelessness of your situation and you were in a really deep state of depression and you wanted nothing more than to have the tube withdrawn and to be allowed to die naturally. But you heard the doctors and your relatives deciding that because you could sometimes maybe apparently respond to music, you've got a good quality of life so you should be kept alive as long as possible. If you were in either of those dreadful situations, think how amazing it would be if you could be put in a scanner and asked the test questions and then asked whether you wanted the tube feeding to continue and whether you understood the implications of your decision and so on. Now, obviously, that's all wonderful at a purely human level, but legally it's very important as well because the law requires that doctors treat patients in their best interests. And if a patient can't tell the doctor what their best interests are, 
other people have to decide what they think the person would say if they were able to communicate. So if MFMRI could be used to enable patients themselves actually to communicate, then the patients would be exercising their full autonomy, and that's a hugely important concept in medical law. So that's basically why neuroscience and law interests me. If the logistical and technical problems could be sorted, it has the potential to enable really vulnerable people to play a full part in, well, literally life and death decisions. Yes, I mean, that's, that's very important and from the standpoint of autonomy. So moving on to civil marriage, what prompted you to investigate that area of law? Oh, now this is a much happier topic. And this one started when I read a press report of a couple who were going to have a civil marriage ceremony. That's a wedding conducted by a superintendent registrar in the presence of another registrar who registers the marriage. The couple had decided that, as well as saying the things that the law requires them to say, which is that they're legally free to marry and that they each take the other as their spouse, they wanted to make some vows to each other. They knew that they couldn't say anything religious in a civil ceremony, so they chose the traditional words, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, till death us do part which originate in the Church of England marriage service, but don't contain any references to God or any words like blessing. And they'd shown those vows to registrars in February 2013, and it was agreed that that's what they would say. But the afternoon before the wedding, in July 2013, the bride-to-be was phoned by the registrar office and told that the vows were too religious. Now, obviously, she didn't want to have a fight with the registrar office a few hours before she was due to get married. So she had to agree to the alternative words that they suggested, which included to hold and to have and in sickness and when we are well. But on their wedding day, the groom stumbled over his words and the bride got the giggles. And I'm sure that isn't what either, what either of them would have wanted to happen at such an important moment. But that got me thinking... If registrars who worked in the same registrar office couldn't agree on what was religious and what wasn't, then what was going on? So I decided to find out. If only the group didn't bumble. <laughs> um, so how did you design the study? Well, the first thing I had to do was to find out what the law was, because I hadn't even studied family law at undergraduate level, so I was starting from a base of just general knowledge. And I found out that the main legislation is still the Marriage Act of 1949, which is a bit surprising, to put it mildly, when you think of all the massive social and cultural and other changes that have happened in the last 70 years. The most recent statement about religious materials in civil marriage ceremonies dates from 2005, and it's part of the legislation that provided details about civil partnership ceremonies. That says that the, the proceedings must not be religious in nature, and that means that they mustn't include extracts from religious marriage services or sacred religious texts or be led by a religious leader or involve any religious rituals or include hymns or religious chants or any form of worship. But, now this is a very controversial bit, these ceremonies are allowed to include, and I'm quoting directly here, Readings, songs or music that contain an incidental reference to a god with a lowercase g or deity in an essentially non-religious context. Guidance that's been published to help registrars to interpret that has given examples such as Robbie Williams' song Angels, and that's acceptable because although an angel is a religious entity, the song isn't religious. 
Now, so far, everything I've said about religion relates to Christianity, which was the dominant religion in the UK for many centuries. But the law doesn't just exclude material that's Christian in nature. It bans everything that's religious in nature. And I realised that if I were a registrar, you could probably present to me with words from wedding services in religions other than Christianity, and I would never have heard them before. So I'd probably allow a couple to say them. And that got me wondering whether people who actually are registrars are really any better than I am at recognising material that's religious in nature. So I decided to do some empirical research. I wanted to find out whether any couple had had similar experiences to those that I'd read about, about what could or couldn't be included in their civil weddings, and which vows they'd asked to be included, and whether those vows had been permitted by registrars. And I also decided to try and find out from registrars whether there's any consistency in the way that they are interpreting and applying the law. And my favourite question in the questionnaire that we gave to registrars was the one where they're presented with a number of vows. Some of them are taken from marriage services in various religions. Some are taken from bride-to-be websites. And there are some that are just invented. And then they were asked whether they would permit those vows to be said in a ceremony that they were conducting. And I asked registrars to give their instinctive reactions to the vows rather than asking their line manager or checking on Google, which is probably what they do in practice. And the aim here wasn't to catch registrars out, but to see what they would naturally recognise or not recognise as being religious. So you had two questionnaires, one for registrars, one for couples. Um, how did you recruit the participants for the study? Well, I decided that the best way to find couples would be to identify those who had visited register offices to give formal notice of their intention to marry, because names and addresses have to be published before they marry. And for registrars, I decided to contact the General Register Office, the GRO, to find out how to contact them, because I didn't know. And the person I spoke to was tremendously helpful. He told me that although the GRO sends registrar circulars that contain guidance about the law and other things, the registrars don't report to the GRO, so there is no central management structure. Um, I'd already decided to limit the research to England for practical reasons, and the GRO told me that there are 153 registration districts in England. Each one covers precisely one local authority area. And each registration district has a central contact point, and the GRO sends one email to each contact point, and that email should then be forwarded to all the registrars who work in that registration district. And all the registrars in any registration district report to one person in that district, so that means there are effectively 153 separate organisations whose task is to deliver registration services across the country. And the GRO very kindly sent me its mailing list. So all I had to do was to email the contact points and ask them to forward the email, which contained a link to an online questionnaire, to the registrars. Another really important aspect of this study was collaboration. Um, I plucked up my courage and contacted Professor Rebecca Probert, who is the leading authority on English marriage law. And Rebecca was far more receptive to my ideas than I had dared to hope. I had a very long and interesting phone call. And eventually I took a deep breath and I asked if she'd like to collaborate. And she accepted really enthusiastically. And that was one of the best decisions I've ever made. Because Rebecca had been the academic advisor to the Law Commission when it had conducted a scoping study on reforming the law on marriage ceremonies. And she knows the law inside out. 
And she also knew that no one else had ever conducted research in the area that I was proposing to look at. So that means it's completely original. And Rebecca had a number of contacts who proved to be really helpful as the project developed. Um, I'd already drafted the questionnaires in Word before I spoke to Rebecca, but she and I spent ages refining and re-refining them. We tried to get some external funding for a research assistant who could visit the registrar offices to gather the couple's names and addresses, but we weren't successful in that. Luckily, that aspect of the project was saved when I was awarded some seed corn funding by the OU. So you made your questionnaire. Um, so how many did you distribute? Uh, how many did you get back? We posted out 300 questionnaires to couples. That was 20 from each of 15 registrar offices. And we got over 60 paper responses. We also had 48 electronic responses. Um, we've recruited couples to that by saying in the letter that we posted that there was um, a scanning gadget that you could access an online questionnaire. And we also advertised the survey electronically via the university's social media accounts. So overall for the couples, we got a response rate of 23%, which is fantastic really for a cold survey. But of course, people love talking <laughs> about their weddings, rather like they like talking about their research. <laughs> um, I've got no idea how many of the emails to registrars were actually forwarded or how many registrars there are in any district. But we got 126 replies and they covered 60 registration districts. So we'd had at least one response from nearly 40% of English registration districts. Um, and what did you find? What did you recommend in, the, in your paper? Well, we recommended changes in four areas. Firstly, we said that there should be better and more accessible guidance for couples about what to expect in a civil wedding ceremony. The guidance that the registrars have to follow is kept in a handbook on a password-protected website and detailed advice that couples get varies between registration districts. Secondly, there should be better guidance for registrars. Just about all the registrars who completed questionnaires knew that the vows must not be religious in nature, which is absolutely correct. But our study showed that the only vows that they instinctively recognised as religious by most of our respondents were the to have and to hold one and slight variants on it. And that one comes from the Church of England traditional marriage service. Words from the Roman Catholic marriage service, Hinduism, the Baha'i faith, Judaism, and even part of the modern Church of England vows would have been permitted by most of our respondents. Now, I should mention that over 80% of our respondents were white and most stated that they had either no religion or were Christians. And in practice, and some re respondents did actually state this, I think most registrars would check whether something was religious before they decided whether to permit it. But their job would be much easier if they were provided with, as one respondent actually suggested, a document that detailed the marriage rituals from every religion. Thirdly, we suggest that the regulations should be changed so that couples could include religious elements in the civil ceremony after they'd completed the legal formalities. Now, we wouldn't suggest that any registrar should have to say any religious words or to participate in any religious ritual. They'd just be observers. But that can happen already if they attend non-Anglican places of worship to register weddings that have been conducted by religious leaders. And lastly, because we aim high, we would like to see a change in the law. The government has recently announced that it's going to ask the Law Commission to undertake a major review of marriage law. And the Commission is aware of our findings. So we hope that our study will contribute to a change in the law.
we'd like the law to be amended so that the widest possible range of ceremonies, whether they're conducted by a civil registrar or a person who's authorised to conduct marriages in a place registered for worship or belief, could be recognised as creating legally valid marriages. Well, changing the law is a pretty big ask. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, fingers and toes crossed. Uh, now, you mentioned that you've undertaken also a scholarship project. Um, so what is that? What does the OU think about scholarship? How did that came about? Okay, well, the OU's definition of scholarship, which I have to say I had to look up, is activities that lead to evidence-informed development of our learning and teaching. So really, it's about studying how we teach and why we teach in that way. Now, one of the really brilliant and unique things about the OU is that it takes students who have no prior qualifications and no subject knowledge. So if someone enrolls on a law degree with the OU, they are taught law from scratch, assuming no knowledge at all. But we treat graduates differently. If someone's already got a degree in any subject, we know that they will have developed a certain set of skills and proves that they've got a certain level of academic ability. And we have a policy, therefore, that they don't have to study any level one modules, which is great because it recognises their ability, but it means that they don't have any opportunity to learn the basic law that we would teach them at level one that would enable them to study law effectively at levels two and three. So I was asked to design some materials for graduate entrance to the law degree that would teach them the basics. And that would have been fine, except that there was no time allocated to that kind of study. The OU is, rightly, very strict about students' workloads. So I had to design something that was completely optional and that could be studied in a very short time. Um, after consulting colleagues, I wrote what are now called 12 Introductory Steps to Law. They're all online and each step includes about five minutes of assimilative learning. That's the written or podcast material that sort of imparts the information covering a core legal topic. And then about 10 minutes of interactive activities that are designed to test whether students have really mastered the basics of that topic. And we advise the students to open the activities in a separate window so that they can easily refer back to the bits of the assimilative material that matter most. Okay, so how did you design the research study? I'd done a bit of Googling, and as far as I could see, no one had ever published anything about materials to support graduates when they started a degree in a new subject. So I thought that what I was doing might be completely original. And another reason that I started thinking about doing some research on this scholarship project was because it became clear during the planning stage that none of my colleagues had any more idea than I did whether students prefer written or podcast material. So I wrote six steps as podcast dialogues and six written printed steps and decided to ask the students which they liked better. I found out that there's a facility in Moodle, which is the virtual learning environment platform that we use, to construct a poll. So I asked five questions at the end of each step. And they were, was the step useful? How long did it take the student to study the step? Did the student prefer podcast or written material? Had the student ever studied law before? And was the student using the step to prepare, a to, prepare to study an OU module or to revise material they'd already learned? And I got responses for 1,013 individual steps that had been studied by 240 students. So it was quite a big sample. And what did you find? 
Well, the first bit of good news was that 98.5% of the steps were rated as either useful or very useful, so they'd served that initial purpose. The second bit of good news was that the overwhelming majority of students had studied the overwhelming majority of the steps in between 5 and 20 minutes, which was the target time range. So they hadn't taken too long, and that was a really important consideration. But in order to analyse the results properly, I had to use some number crunching software called SPSS, which is Statistics Package for Social Sciences. I'd used it for my PhD, but that was about 20 years ago, so it's changed a lot, and I, of course, have forgotten everything I ever knew about <laughs> it. But I managed to work out the basics, but I discovered that there was a lot that I wanted to do and couldn't, so I advertised on the OU intranet for help. And I was really lucky in that an expert statistician who's got a keen interest in scholarship volunteered to help me, because as well as showing me how to do the things I couldn't work out for myself, she explained that she would be able to merge the data from my Moodle polls with students' results for their Level 2 law modules. And that could all be done using two different student identifiers. As soon as it had been done, all the identifiers were deleted, so there was no way of finding out which students' results we were looking at. But it was that extra bit of the project that led to the best news of all because we found out that there was a statistically significant correlation between the number of steps that a student had studied and their results on the Level 2 law modules, even if they'd studied law before. Of course, that didn't prove that the steps had actually been the thing that had led to the student's success, but it was a very encouraging finding. And with that and the other stuff, I was able to get an article published in a journal called The Law Teacher. And then in February 2019, I discovered that I'd won an OU Individual Teaching Award for the Steps, and the awarding panel has asked me to apply for a National Teaching Fellowship. So that's pretty exciting. I can't imagine. I mean, I guess it shows that scholarship projects are also very valuable and very important because it is about how we teach. Um, and it does benefit one's career. So, uh, what did you find out? This is a particularly interesting for me. What did you find out about students' preferences for written material or podcasting material? Oh, yes, I forgot that one. Yeah, that was a bit of a surprise. About two-thirds of students preferred a mixture, which was what I'd given them. But of the ones who expressed a preference, about two-thirds preferred written materials to podcasts. And that's all against the current thinking that people are fed up with reading and now they want some whizzier alternative methods of delivery. So why do you think that is? Well, I don't know, but I can speak personally because I find if I hear something, there's a kind of, when it's gone, it's gone effect. Whereas if I read it, it takes up more of my brain and therefore I'm more likely to remember it. I mean, I can do, do the ironing or do the washing up if I'm listening to the radio, but I can't do anything else much when I'm reading. I suppose an even better way to learn would be to read the transcript while listening to the podcast, because that would take a huge proportion of someone's available brain space, which I don't think is a scientific term at all, <laughs> um, and that would mean that they were really concentrating, and I think that would be bound to lead to better understanding and recall of whatever the material was. So do you think that this type of uh, materials are transferable in other academic disciplines? Um, I don't really know. I think probably... Some subjects might be, but I imagine that if you've got a degree in history, you're probably well placed to start on, say, English literature at level two, because I see that much of the basic knowledge there and the basic skills are transferable. But I think there's probably other subjects, I don't know, maybe maths, where 
the level one modules would have been taught so taught the students some really important basic concepts that they would have to understand in order to make sense of the level two modules. So it might be possible for academics in maths to write short summaries of some of the basics like perfect numbers or factorising. I don't really know what, what would matter, but they could be fairly quick to learn and then they'd make people who had a degree in something totally different much more able to cope with level two maths modules. So I see the potential uses in other disciplines, but let's move on to um, the, your fourth research project, which is about secondary legislation. So what got you interested in it? Well, this is another project that arose from my teaching. Um, I was writing an OU unit about the sources of law in England and Wales, and I found a textbook that said that there were several kinds of secondary legislation, and that statement was followed by a bullet list. And the list went something like this. It was orders in council, orders of council, statutory instruments, bylaws, court rule committees. And I thought that must be nonsense. A court rule committee can't be a source of law. And I realised that apart from the court rule committee, the list reflected the lists that I'd seen in, I think, every other textbook on the legal system of England and Wales that I had ever read. So I started to wonder whether the rest of the list might be wrong as well. So in my terrier-like way, I started digging, and eventually, with the help of Google, I unearthed a dusty old parliamentary paper from 2006 called Statutory Instrument Practice, and that explained everything you could ever want to know about statutory instruments. And this paper clearly stated that orders in council and orders of council and ministerial orders and rules with a capital R and regulations also with a capital R <laughs> are all types of statutory instruments. Actually, I was really pleased when I discovered that because I'd often vaguely wondered why those types of legislation had SI numbers when, as I'd learnt it, they weren't SIs at all. So it was then that I realised that students had been wrongly taught how secondary legislation is classified well, I don't know how long for, at least 20 years, because that was when I was taught it, in the 90s. So it was all really because of a dusty old parliamentary paper that you found Googling? Yep, and that one paper contained everything that I needed to be sure that all those textbooks were wrong. And of course court rule committees weren't mentioned at all, and I still don't understand how a group of people could ever have been thought to be a source of law. But there we go. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so what com came about as a result from this research? Well, at that time, which was 2012, I was working freelance and my only connection with the OU was as an associate lecturer, so I didn't have any allocated research time. So I just wrote an article for the New Law Journal, which is very widely read, but it's not an academically prestigious journal. I wrote just a couple of thousand words that explained what I'd discovered, that there's just the two types of secondary legislation, which are statutory instruments and bylaws, and then there are five different forms of statutory instruments. And then I explained what each form is used for, and I gave an example of it. And I was pretty nervous because I was openly challenging what had been the accepted wisdom for decades. So I decided that I would try and get the article checked. I managed to get in touch with the committee advisor to the Secondary Legislation Scrutiny Committee in the House of Lords, and he confirmed that the paper that I had found was still regarded as correct, and amazingly, he agreed to read my <laughs> article. Um, I can't quite remember how he worded the email, but the gist was that he couldn't find anything wrong with what I'd written, but he also gave me the wording for the acknowledgement, and that very properly said that the responsibility for any errors was mine. 
So that gave me the confidence when I published my findings and they've never been challenged. And then the article was republished more or less in its entirety in the Silex Journal, which is the journal for chartered legal executives. Um, their editorial policy is normally never to republish anything, but they accepted this because it's interesting. I thought that's quite good, but I thought that would be the end of it. But a few months later, I got an email from Michael Zander, who's an emeritus professor at the LSE, and he asked whether he could reproduce much of my little article in the next edition of his book called The Lawmaking Process, which I think is the most interesting and authoritative book that there is about the legal system. So, surprisingly, it didn't take me very long to say yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so my name now appears in Michael Zander's book, in a list of acknowledgements that includes lords and sirs and professors and judges and QCs. And I've also appeared in the acknowledgements section of the next edition of Slapper and Kelly's book, English Law, which is another really important textbook, where it said that my work on secondary legislation has been particularly helpful. And in 2017 and 2018, by which time I was a full-time academic here, I did a lot more reading on parliamentary papers. I developed some ideas about the myths that surround secondary legislation and Brexit. And I gave a presentation about that at a conference in September 2018. And I wrote an 11,000-word article about it that's been published in a journal called Public Law, which is quite prestigious. And that came out in January 2019. So, really, I've got a huge amount to thank <laughs> Google and that parliamentary paper for. <laughs> um, yes. And we've almost managed to go through the whole podcast without mentioning Brexit, but here we are. <laughs> um, so finally, do you have any advice on uh, new researchers and people who are just starting out with their research? Well, I think the first thing is that you have to be absolutely fascinated by your subject, because if you aren't, it will be awful to have to think about it day after day, week after week, year after year, possibly for five years if you're doing a PhD. Um, I'd also say that you need a bit of an obsessive streak. Now that can range from a mild feature of your personality to something <laughs> that's close to a medical disorder, and I won't tell you where I fall on that spectrum. But I would say that if I didn't have that terrier-like obsession with things, I would never have found the parliamentary paper, so that research idea would just have died. And I suppose finally, I'd say to a new researcher that you have to be open to all the opportunities that your research offers you and you have to grab them with both hands because many of the best experiences of my research career have been completely unexpected. I mean, I never thought that my name would appear next to Lord Russell of Killowin or that I would get an email from Michael Zander or that my work could be considered by the Law Commission and I never thought that I would have one solo and one co-authored chapter in the Yearbook of Science and Ethics. And I certainly never thought that I'd get a teaching award for something that was the basis of a journal article on research. So overall, I would say that researchers just have to be true to themselves, be true to what they find, and then be prepared to go wherever those findings take them, because that seems to be what's worked for me. Well, thank you very much for this talk, Stephanie. Thank you very much, Marianne. Thank you very much for listening to this podcast and I hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoyed making it. I hope you will come back for the next podcast about the law school's research. As ever, you can find out more about the law school on our website. Don't forget to tune in in July when we start our celebration of the OU's 50th birthday. The music in the background is Dirty Mac by Endless Love. Take care and hope to see you again.